This week on Three Questions with Corey Kareem. What do you believe is the best lesson you've learned from either failing or overcoming those difficult, challenging moments in your life thus far? What do you believe the best lesson is that you've learned from those moments? Um, I think trust. Mm. Like trust in my incredible support group my 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 friends that i don't wouldn't be anywhere without my my family my sister like i think the biggest thing i've actually learned is is trust now before we get started with this beautiful conversation please help a brother out and click on that follow button on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Enjoy the conversation. Welcome back, guys. Welcome back to another episode of Three Questions with Corey Kareem, the podcast where we sit down with some amazing people who are doing some amazing things. And that's right. You guessed it. We ask them three questions, sometimes four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> but rather than talk about people's wins or successes, uh, we tend to talk about some of their failures uh, and more importantly, uh, the lessons that they learn from those individual experiences. So with that being said, my guest today is someone who embodies the essence of merging profit with purpose. She's passionate about social impact and sustainability, and her extensive experience in these fields speaks volumes about her dedication to making a positive difference in the world. She is a strategic thinker with a proven track record of developing impactful strategies and bringing them to life. With expertise in project and client management, strategic development, and community investment. She's carved out a niche for herself in the realm of social change. Currently, she serves as the Director of Growth at Havas Media Canada and has been recently recognized for her outstanding contributions. This year... She was honored as Strategy Online's 2023 New Establishment Media Winner, a testament to her innovative approach in the media landscape. Additionally, she was selected as one of the peak's emerging leaders for 2023, celebrating her role as an up-and-coming young leader shaping Canada's economy, culture, and society. In a recent article, she shared a profound insight. I quote, while goals are good for setting direction, systems are best for making progress. So without further ado, Sydney Kirkland, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> I am blushing. I was not ready for that, even though we had a conversation before. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. No worries. And, and thank you so much for uh, taking the time to be on the platform as well. So now that you've heard me rhyme back your experiences, your accolades, how do you feel? Well, I'm, I'm happy that this is a podcast because I feel like everyone would be able to see me blushing. Um, but I think you're absolutely right. You said that there's either people who forget that they did all of that or, or, mm -hmm. or can't believe that that's what they were, were doing. And I think I fall into the, to the latter, like hearing it all back um it's 
it's kind of shocking because a lot of the times, like we don't really talk, we talk a lot about the success, but I think it's really, it's this is a really cool platform and a cool mm-hmm. place to talk about the failures that get to all those success. Right. Right. A hundred percent. Now I'll be completely honest with you. Mm-hmm. I did use some help. I did use ChatGPT. Did you? I, I, so I took all the stuff, all the bits and pieces. I put it into ChatGPT. I said, help me to write an amazing intro for a podcast. <laughs> it gave me a lot. I trimmed it down. I massaged it. I customized it. So I, I did have some help. Amazing. So it wasn't a hundred percent. So you used the tool as it was meant to be used. Absolutely. One thousand percent. Love that. Amazing. So, uh, Sydney, as you just mentioned, you know, with our platform, with my platform, um, I like to talk about, you know, the hardships, the difficult times, the difficult moments, the down periods, whatever you want to call them. So with that being said, tell me about a time where you had your biggest fuck up or mistake. What happened? How did you work through it? And most importantly, what did you learn from it? Starts with an easy question, I see. <laughs> right to it. <laughs> right to it. Um, well, I when I first got your questions, I was really trying to get as thoughtful and 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 real with them as possible. Um, mm. And the first kind of immediate jump I made was to anything that was work related, like mm. what were my biggest work mistakes and how did I learn from them. Um, but I. I don't know. I kept kind of pushing and digging a little bit deeper. And I think I'm going to get a little personal Mm -hmm. if that's cool on here. I think like, I, like I said, my immediate jump was to like my work side, but I think the biggest mistake that I have made, and this is something I can only talk about like retroactively hindsight's always 2020, Mm -hmm. um, is actually jumping back into work too quickly after my father passed. Mm -hmm. I, really like I, I barely took a week before I was right back in the office going wow. right back into productivity mode, trying to handle both, um, grieving mm-hmm. client management, which is mm-hmm. infamous, infamously tough as you, as you know, Corey. Mm-hmm. Um, but then also I was working with my sister to execute his will and, and get all that together. And I think I, I say that's my biggest mistake now because I didn't realize in the time how much that was affecting me. Um, mm. And I think it's a, a little bit of a, of a mistake people often don't think about is, is like, how, how are you showing up completely? Cause when you go to work, you bring your full self to work, right? Regardless mm. of what you're going through personally, how you, how you show up, like it always comes through. So I think, again, I think like my biggest mistake was not taking that time to grieve and process and be with my family and understand how that has like fundamentally changed me as a person mm-hmm. and kind of working through that on, on the go. Um, but again, I feel like I can only really talk about this or see this as a mistake, like with years past, right. With so much distance from the actual incident. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think that was like, I think it was my biggest fuck up. Yeah. So <laughs> what would you say ultimately, like, not that obviously I want to speak this into existence, but if that was to happen mm-hmm. again with another loved one or close one, what do you think you would do differently this time around? Yeah, I think well, that's a, that's a great question. I think the, the first kind of incident, the first like real loss that a person experiences, I think fundamentally changes that person. Mm-hmm. And often like, 
there's, I think my, my, I don't know, my therapist told me that there's PTSD, but there's also PTSD, like post-traumatic growth. And Mm -hmm. I think by focusing on the things that you can learn or take from or try to focus on like the, the, the slowdown and actually notice all the lessons that you're being taught through this failure or this loss or this grief, because it doesn't have to be a big traumatic capital T trauma or, or, or death or some, like something big like that. It can be any kind of experience that you feel that you have failed or you're grieving or relationship you're grieving or, or, or a loss of some sort. Like you can always find that piece of nugget that, that the, the new perspective that it offers you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I would have found that a little bit sooner or quicker had I given myself the space to grieve a bit more, to think about this a bit more instead of just, you know, ignoring it. I think like ultimately I was just burying my head in the sand with productivity or what I thought was productivity. And that's something that we have always been taught. And I think it's something that I am, um, I'm trying to like work on myself is like giving yourself the time and space to breathe, to think, to reflect, because that will bring more growth than anything. Um, so if like experience any kind of loss or, or something like that, again, I, I think the critical moments is the moments you take to pause and think and remember and talk about, about whatever, that, whatever you're going through. Does that make any sense? Am I making no, any I, sense? I, you're, you're hitting so many <laughs> notes for me personally, because recently I lost, uh, my grandmother I'm sorry, uh, in August and I felt like I haven't really grieved her death. Now I know everyone grieves differently. And I think I might have one of those delayed grieving processes that I'm going through. Yeah. And um, I am very guilty of filling my life with positive distractions. Yes. I so I'm, hear like, you. I'm, I'm like faking myself out with like, Oh, it's good stuff. I'll go to the gym. Mm-hmm. I'll listen to good podcasts. I'll invest in more stuff and in, in work related things like all good stuff. But yeah. to your point, I'm not taking the time to actually grieve or do the work on myself mm-hmm. and sit there with my thoughts because to be you know vulnerable with you, it's really uncomfortable. Right? It's so I, hard. Yes. So I totally get you. Yeah. And it's, often in those times where it's, it's hard to justify because it's like, I'm doing all these amazing things. Like Mm -hmm. I appear to be doing well. I appear to be going, like going to the gym, keeping your, your, your social calendar full. Mm -hmm. But I just, I, in my experience, it finds a way to show itself regardless. Mm. Um, so being able to like sit with it a bit more, even though like that's the Mm-hmm. that's the hard stuff, right? It's, yes. it's the feelings of, it's feeling your sads a bit. Yes. And that's, that's the toughest part. And I think that's like why, when you're like, what is your biggest failure? I think, I honestly don't think I've ever corrected it. I think it's something that, as you said, like your grief is sometimes delayed. Everyone grieves differently. And it's mm-hmm. such a, it's an ongoing process mm-hmm. um, that you kind of grow around and into. And I, I, just, I think it's like one of the hardest things, which is why I don't know if I've ever fixed it. Like as part of your questions, like how would you fix it or do it again? Um, it's just kind of something you, you grow with and around. Right. And it becomes no. a part of you. And that's just part of your story. A hundred percent. I couldn't agree anymore with what you just said. Yeah. Now, sustainability. Yes. Uh, it's obviously a, a subject matter you champion. 
what does your passion for sustainability come from? Why is it important to you? And what are you doing now that really excites you in this space? Another easy question. Um, again, I was trying to think about this. I was thinking about your questions quite a bit and I was like trying to nail down a one moment, this, this part of my life that I was like, yes, sustainability is something that I love and I champion, but I don't, I don't know if I can actually nail down something that has, has driven this passion. I just, I think it kind of was something that you always you kind of just have to consider. Mm. Um, for me, it's like nature will always find a way to heal and to bounce back. And I think that it's something beautiful and there's, there's so much resilience in that. And there's so much that we can learn from nature, but like humans, frankly, are the ones that are kind of in trouble. <laughs> like the, mm. the earth will heal. They will, it will find its way back, but it's, it's us that's kind of, you know, in danger effectively. How are we going to survive? How are we going to keep doing things if there's no planet to actually do it on or uh, work work on or be, be in one with? So for me, I don't know if sustainability was ever something that was like an active thing that I was focusing on. Um, I do remember, though, there was one specific moment within like I started my career in advertising and it was it's so much fun, right? Like the the storytelling aspect, it's, it's how can you how can you communicate in a way that makes people feel something that they feel emotionally connected to? And the fact that you can use that to drive action, whether that be a purchase in most instances or getting people to care about um, an, like a, a, an organization or a cause or, or helping people to understand and educate. Like, I think that was the part that drove me the most is the fact that you can use storytelling to incite change. And I think that's the part that still excites me the most to be completely honest, like mm. our industry, media, communications, stories, like this is how we understand and see and learn and communicate and connect with each other. I just think that there's so much potential here for us to actually use that, right? Like how can we, how can we tell stories that we can incite change and like, and do the things that actually need to get done? Um so I don't know if, like, again, like if there is anything that was so specific that was like, yes, I want to do sustainability. Um, but I think, again, the thing that excites me the most and like what we're doing right now is I think there's so much within media specifically, like we are one of the leading causes of like greenhouse gases, mm-hmm. anything, everything digital, anything gets put out. Like I just, I think for a while brands and organizations weren't really considering scope three emissions and that's what we, where we sit. Um, specifically within the media agent like industry, and I think it's really exciting because now, like fr- uh, from a new business perspective, I get to see I get a unique look into what organizations are looking for and what they want their partners to be considering now. And I think it's not only something that consumers are demanding, which we we know it's um it's now something that organizations brands are demanding of their partners as well. Like how are you taking into consideration your actions on the world because it's not just about like I, I tr- to- totally believe that you can profit with purpose. And I think you <laughs> said that in my intro, but, mm-hmm. and more and more brands are are thinking about it. So that's super exciting. Um, but yeah. Yeah. I, I love that. There's a couple of things that, mm-hmm. that came across my mind. So I was watching 
I'm kind of like a, a documentary nerd on the weekend. I nice. Wake Love up it. Early in the morning and I just decided to watch documentaries. <laughs> and I was watching one about, uh, it's about the world, mm-hmm. right? All 65 billion or 500, I don't know, however the world, however old the world is, right? And one thing that, a, a stat that I came across, it said the world has survived over five extinction level events, right? Mm-hmm. And there's something you said uh, when you were giving me your answer, it's like the world will figure itself out. Yeah. Right? It will heal itself. And, you know, when you said that, it reminded me of that documentary because it, it's a, the ice age, all these different changes in nature and all that. Um, and then the second thing you said is why you love or the how the advertising portion connects to sustainability is that, you know, you get the opportunity to, to storytell. And, you know, there's that, saying in advertising we're not saving lives yeah we're not we saving lives we could be but we inspire people so mm-hmm. i think that that the the kind of the language i'm going to get in the ad sales motion portion there <laughs> is we inspire people to save lives like we we inspire yeah. companies through our language through the media tactics through the story the words that we put together right so mm-hmm. and i think that's very important so yeah we might not be necessarily as immediate or urgent as a doctor, let's just say. Correct. That is for but sure. <laughs> we do inspire at large the masses when mm-hmm. it's done with a conscious, right? When it's done yeah. purposely, anyways. Yeah. And like I think you touch on a little bit of this like the art and science that we always kind of say is is in communications, right? There's a science part and there's like mm-hmm. who we reach and how we reach it, reach them and what channels and all of like the actual hard science behind media for example but then there's the art it's like mm-hmm. the human side the meaningful side how are we going to how are we going to reach and touch that person in a meaningful way mm-hmm. and i also kind of think that's like where the industry is headed within sustainability and i mean sustainability and like the um the like emission greenhouse gas sustainability like environmental sustainability versus like the writ large sustainability of inclusion like an ed and i and all that kind right. of stuff so specifically focusing on like greenhouse gas emissions I think there is a little bit of the art and science to that, right? Like right now with the amazing work like scope three is doing right now is like, how do we, how do we do the baseline measurement? Like how do we know we're actually affecting change unless we all have something to measure up against? And I think personally, like I think the industry is we're moving towards better, but I think there is what, if we could do anything as a collective, I think it's, we need to start being more open about how we're going to measure our emissions. Cause like, we just need a standard and we just need a good baseline. And that's like the science to it. And then the art part is like, okay, how do we, how do we take that and, and, and talk to people in a way that's actually meaningful, that, that communicates what we're doing, that doesn't get perceived as greenwashing. Um, mm. And off, and, and honestly do it in a way that is good. And mm-hmm. not perfect, because I often find that perfect is the enemy of good, and it prevents mm-hmm. a lot of people from trying to take that first step, which is honestly crucial if we're just gonna if we're just gonna get a little bit better, if we're gonna get one percent better. Um, so yeah, that art and science, yes, is so applicable. Yes, and <laughs> I'd add one more p word mm. uh, to perfect and performative. Yes, I'm not a big fan of brands, governments, or anything doing mm. anything from a, a performative. Uh, aspect and I'd, I'd be remiss not to take the chance to say that you know audio is more environmentally friendly than video it that's is. why spotify is a great platform just 
Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Even do you think? Has a video on it. Yeah. Do you think there's? Well, okay. Well, I have a question back to you, Corey. Yeah, yeah. Go for there it. is the performative. There's the greenwashing. Mm-hmm. How do you see? How do you see? Like, what do you think brands need to do to be authentic in their great, sustainability efforts? Great question. Um, I think a brand has to look at their ethos. So, whatever those mission statements are, and I don't think a brand needs to tie themselves to every trending topic that's out there. Mm-hmm. I think there's some pressure there from the public that happens. And I, and I get that. Um, but I think if we truly want to be authentic, we got to look at what the ethos of that company is, what that core mission statement is and look at those um, topics that are important to the world. So if we're talking about it from an environment standpoint, does that align with our ethos? And then mm. let's invest in that. If it doesn't, let's try, let's try to be mindful. So here's my thing, right? We are asking people to be honest, but when they share their version of the truth, let's just phrase it like that, we get upset at them, right? And mm-hmm. then we put them into a box. We want to label them when really it could be used as an opportunity to educate. Yeah. And so I feel now in our society, I had this one other conversation. Everything is political, right? Even yeah. if you don't want it to be, right? And mm-hmm. I think I think that creates a dangerous environment where people will just conform mm. and not be honest. And if you can't be honest, therefore you can't be authentic. Yeah. You're just kind of falling in line. Um, and so I think for companies that are serious about it, and let's be honest, some companies are just all about the bottom line. It is what it is. But for the ones that are curious, the ones that do want to get better, what makes sense for us? Mm -hmm. What's in line? Or do we have to change our ethos? Maybe that's a conversation. And so I think, I do believe that, you know, you can be a capitalist and have a conscious. I think it is possible. I think I think so too, and I think we're starting to see like the fruits of that mm-hmm. come to fruition a little bit. Not only like do we know consumers are demanding it, but again, I think there is a little bit of trepidation mm-hmm. when people are starting to enter this kind of conversation. Not even just around sustainability, but around EDNI and truth and reconciliation, mm-hmm. and of course, like everything needs to be done incredibly mindfully and with those communities at the table and considered and making sure that everything is is done in a respectful way but when it comes to sustainability or anything like that I, I really do believe that like perfect again is the enemy of good where everyone mm. is af- afraid to get it wrong um and I don't know how to fix that yeah no, is it ours to fix I don't know <laughs> you know you're right it's a it's a good question and I think part of that fear is seeing when people don't get it right mm. the backlash the, the cancel culture yeah. that comes with that, you know, we want, we want to avoid that and we want to tiptoe around that. But to your point, you know, uh, perfection is the enemy of progress. So yeah. uh, I totally get it. But I think now that we're having the conversation, I think at least that's the first step in the right direction. Yeah. Just be yeah. human. Yes. While trying. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so Sydney, mm. as the director of growth for Havas Media Canada, you know, part of your day-to-day 
involves pitching for new business, pitching for new clients. So when you're looking at pitching for new business, what is your process? Do you look for a specific set of problems or criteria? In other words, Sydney, what is your formula for putting together a great pitch? I, and I'm really asking for me now. This is like a, totally <laughs> a me question. I want to know your secret sauce. If you don't want to share all of oh, it, that's man. perfectly fine. Just drop me a gem or two. Just just one nugget. Well, if I had a, if I had a perfect formula, then <laughs> we'd be we'd be unstoppable. But I think I think I'm honestly really lucky to be at a company who allows me to have a lot of flexibility mm. within within new business. I, I kind of think it's it's the best part of the agency, but also kind of like the most like scared part mm-hmm. because everyone really enjoys new business. And when it's done well, it can be super creative and super energizing. And you get to be with the, the smartest people and create something so new that and solve these problems that you won't really get to on a day-to-day with like almost no restraints because off day-to-day clients will, there's realities there that you have to take into consideration. But then on the flip side of that, like new business is also so notorious for burnout, for something you do off the side of your desk, for um, very, very stressful situations. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're very mindful of that when we choose which projects we take on, which RFPs we respond to. Um, and like the first thing that we really do look for to be, and I feel like I'm plugging Havas, but I'm really, <laughs> really not. It's, 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 we are very values-based. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it, do they match our expectations of being human first? Is it, are they, are they, are they looking for a strategic partner? Are they looking for someone to grow with? I think is a big one. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's very, sometimes, you know, the industry with RFPs, it's very every three years and then we turn over, but is this, is this a, a long-term partnership that we're looking for? Um, so that's a, kind of like our first, right. um, Filter, I guess, mm-hmm. is the is the way you could look at it. And then the second thing we kind of, well, I kind of look for as well is, is one, does our team have capacity to take this on? It's very important. And it's something that to me personally, it's like, how do we make sure that new business is fun and something that is not the cause of burnout and a lot of trepidate, like a lot of negative feelings. Cause I think it, it, it can be. So do, do we have the capacity to take it on? Um, and then the last thing, I guess like the, I think you kind of mentioned it. I always love a good goal, but, and they provide amazing direction and you have that North star of what you want to do. But I think the thing that has helped us the most is really almost like productizing or getting a really good system around new business because you only, you fail to the flaws of your system in my, in my belief. Mm-hmm. Um, so those, those like kind of three things, like the values, do we have the capacity and then how are we set up for success internally? Right. Um, and for me, it's not always about winning the, the client. Of course, like that is the dream, but it's like, can we, mm. can we make our process 1% better? Can we make our product 1% better? Can we make our culture? Like, it's always about those little small wins for me. Um, and that's kind of like how I, I set up like my own little learning agenda for each RFP. We'll test that. And uh, yeah, I kind of like last year, I really focused on how we can set up that process to be as 
seamless as possible so that we can get into the fun stuff of like taking our that 80% of what we already know and then making it to the 100 of the fun like how is it really relevant to the client and how can we just get innovative no I, I love that um well I have a follow-up question mm-hmm. so what do you what do you think makes a bad pitch like I'm, I'm assuming you've Oh, <laughs> been on a receiving end or, or been a part of bad pitches, and yeah. what what are some of those things that make a, a a bad pitch? Would you say? Well, three three things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what makes a bad pitch? I think the, a bad pitch is one when there's no chemistry between the people in the room. Mm-hmm. I think that's the biggest indicator because at the end of the day, like I I personally believe, like you can have the best pitch deck in the entire world, but ultimately people want to work with good, fun people, mm-hmm. people who who they want to spend their time with. Like you are working with your agency partner often too much. <laughs> you spend too much time with them. So you want to make sure that like you're, you're, you're going into this partnership with like really good people. So I think a pitch with, with no chemistry, but not only between the, the pitch team, but between the pitch team and the clients, like those are, those are the pitches that I really seen saying where it's like, okay, where it's actually just it's actually just a conversation. We're right. talking about how we can better their their business and understanding what their business problems are. Um, so that'd be the first thing is like lack of chem between. And you, mm-hmm. I feel like you've totally mm-hmm. been mm-hmm. a part of that where there's just like there's nothing going on between who you're trying to sell and 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 yourself. So like that's always a little awkward at best. And then I think the second one for me is you can totally tell when content is canned. Mm. And I just, I fundamentally believe regardless of, yes, you can pick up some a really great answer that you have submitted before. And I really do think, and that's obviously part of the process, but I, I get, I feel like you can just tell. And you know what, maybe that's just something that I need to get over and it's in my head, but I really do think that, and, it, and I believe that clients appreciate that we take the extra time or you take, you do take the extra time to really understand their business and not create content net new, but customize. respond. Yeah, yeah. Customize. Like they're asking mm-hmm. you a question. So it's, it's, it should be personal right. or personalized. So those are like my two biggest ones, especially when you're in a presentation and you're right. like, you've rehearsed this for some, like you can just kind of insert client name and would, it would still, it would still work. Um, So every single time, like we're pitching, it's always, you can literally hear my refrain is like, okay, well, how does this, how does, why does this matter for X client? Like, how are we solving their, their, their problems for them? Um, But it does often cause us to work (laughs) a little longer. So I, I, a side question that just mm-hmm. came to me as a woman, do you ever feel like you've dealt with uh, a level of maybe imposter syndrome? If not that a level of, do I belong here? Because sometimes I've heard some of my woman colleagues talk about, for example, and they're working with an automotive client mm. and that is an industry that's heavily dominated by men. And it could feel sometimes like you don't belong. Not saying that they make you don't feel like you don't belong, but it, your mind can, you know, yes. play some tricks on you, so to speak. Um, have you ever dealt with that? And, and, and <laughs> if you have, do you have any hacks? Because I'm always looking for the hack, yeah. you know, if you have anything like that. Corey, you read my intro and I felt imposter syndrome <laughs> and you were literally talking about me. 
Um, so to answer that question, yes, mm-hmm. almost every day. Um, and are there any hacks? I don't know, to be completely honest. I think also I, I feel like sometimes imposter syndrome is almost kind of like the wrong term. Mm. It's, 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 maybe it's not imposter because that, that would imply that I feel like I'm putting on a front mm. as opposed to, I'm just like mm. unsure if those accolades belong to me. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but yeah, like a lot of the time, like this is to be completely honest, like I have no media experience. This is my mm. first media job. I came from the creative side and then I went into social ESG consulting and marketing. And then from there I jumped into media as new business, which is almost, I feel like a bit bizarre of a, of a switch because mm. it was first of all, a whole new learning curve of what is media. And there's so much science and detail and rigor that goes behind it that I just frankly had no idea. So there was a whole learning curve there. Um, but I do think, for imposter syndrome, I, I don't know if it's really a hack, but it's a drive because that mm. makes me, this is, I don't know if this is going to sound like boastful or weird or anything like Go that, but it. I, Please. I kind of like, you can almost use it as a way to make sure that you do know your stuff. Right. Mm. I think there was, especially during like my first year, I, at Havas, I did almost everything I could to make sure I knew what I was talking about because I felt that imposter syndrome that I didn't want to show up and and not know what I was talking about. At the same time, like I think I'm very passionate about having multiple perspectives in the room. So I also kind of used it to my advantage, right? So if not every client you're going to get is going to be this media savant, like mm. they're not going to understand what you're talking about. So if I can understand what you're trying to tell me in the pitch, I'm like, guaranteed you, client's not going to understand. So like, find ways that maybe the the part of you that's maybe triggering the imposter syndrome can actually be a benefit. Mm. Um, does that make sense? No, it, it makes a lot of sense, actually. And I was, as you were giving me your answer, I was trying to think about what I do. And I asked this question to a lot of people because it's, mm. it's a common thing amongst men yeah. and women across you know, different ethnicities, background. And for me, there's a couple of different things. So one, I say that I, so this sounds kind of boastful and egotistical. <laughs> egotistical. Um, I say I am the only me in the room if I tend to feel inferior. Yeah. Like, and I mean, when I say inferior, I mean in the sense where I'm in a room where I'm the most junior person. Everyone's like, you know, senior management, like you're talking, you know, in the C-suite type of thing um or i'm the one with the least amount of experience right Mm -hmm. or i'm the one who gets paid the least or something like that right so i say that i am the only me in the room that's one of the things i say to myself and then i kind of have this can i I yeah go ahead double down on that though what does that what does that mean to you like is it like i'm the only one with my own perspective my lived experiences that can so Add that's, value. A, that's a great question. So I actually got that kind of narrative from this is going to sound like a, a shameless plug for Spotify, but <laughs> Spotify's AI DJ, oh, Xavier uh, X. Uh, so I interviewed him a while ago and I was talking about, you know, when you are an African-American, you reach to the heights of a company like Spotify 
and there's no one or very few that look like you, what do you say to yourself? And he says, I am the only X in the room. So I don't, he removes hmm. the color aspect. Yeah. And he focused on his personality, who he is, what makes him unique. So for me, when I say I'm the only Corey, I remove the color aspect. I am the only person with my personality in this room. That's what makes me unique. That's what makes me different. This is why I belong here. So that's what I mean when I say I am the only uh, me in the room. And then the other thing that I say to myself, and this is like weird, but like it works for me. So take it, take it if you want it. (laughs) Um, I love weird. So when I, when I feel like I'm a bit anxious because maybe this is a big one and there's a lot of, you know, big guys in the room, big people in the room, and it could feel intimidating. I say this thing to myself. Sometimes I'll even go to the bathroom. I'll look myself in the mirror and I'll say that. I'll say, fuck them. I'll <laughs> literally say there are people fighting in wars right now with bullets flying over their head. And you want me to be scared, intimidated. It's a great perspective. There are people, astronauts, mm-hmm. who get into a, a fancy tin can and for eight minutes experience nonstop severe turbulence. Yeah. Highly dangerous job. Corey Kareem Roberts, I think you'll be okay in this 30 to 45 minute meeting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I think I might I might steal that one. I feel like uh, like, I feel like you already referenced it. Like one of the things that people often say in this agency is like, we're not saving lives. And I use that all the time when there's like an impending deadline. But I think that other perspective of it's, it's, we're just humans. We're just humans. We're just and humans. I, and, and that's the, and that's probably the operative, you know, sentence or phrase mm. is I humanize people. And I think one of the difference between me and uh, a lot of the people I work with, I have a very much, human centric approach. When I present, I'm probably the least analytical person on my team. It is a part of my presentations, but it's not where I focus the most because if I was to go back to school, I think I'd be like a psych major, really fascinated with, with the human brain and and how the mind works and why we do things. I focus on the why, what keeps your attention. So I like to mix fun with data. Yeah. Yeah. I don't just data dump and whatever. I like to make it relatable, digestible, so you make sense of it. I need to make it sticky, right? So I'm all about what little, even if I can use little props in the room, I'll do that. And so that's kind of my approach when I go into a pitch is I really focus on the human factor. At the end of the day, regardless of this person's title, regardless of what they've done in the industry, their experience, they're still a human person. And I know that they will respond to certain things. And I try to figure out what those things are. I love that. And that's interesting because it's, you know, I'm, I'm actually not in the room a lot or actually presenting a lot when we're in, when we're in pitch mode. Mm-hmm. I almost feel like um, a dance mom where I set, I set my kids up and they're like, I'm like, okay, have fun. Good luck. And like try to set them up for success. But it's interesting because a lot of the times they, folks do come to me and they're like, okay, well, how do I... I'm a bit nervous or it's my first time. And we love to get as many juniors in the room just to get practicing and get them excited about the, mm-hmm. feel connected to the agency. But it's like, how do we, how do we get them to help present and help that storytelling aspect? And I think I might steal that, like having that human, 
human first where everyone is mm-hmm. like, well, we got to humanize everyone a bit more. Like it's okay to make mistakes. Like pe- that's just the nature of life. <laughs> yeah. hundred percent. Um, but yeah, that's, that's my thing is perspective is, is, is a big one. Um, one thing I wanted to talk to you about was mm-hmm. work-life balance. Um, is that a myth? Is it, is it really attainable in your POV? How's your week going, Corey? <laughs> yeah. So here, here's my answer to it. Uh, I'm, gonna, I'm actually going to steal from one of my close friends, and he's a, he is a personal trainer who owns two gyms in Toronto. And he's actually like a coach that teaches other personal trainers. And when I asked him that question, I was like, I'm going to steal that answer. And he thinks he doesn't think work-life balance is an actual thing, but he says we operate in extremes. And if this is for like, if you're like a high achiever, Hmm. things like that. Mm -hmm. And he's like, there are moments because right now he's, he's a father, he's a husband He's just opened his second gym and he's like, prior to me opening the second gym, I had more time. I could go pick the school kids up from school at 3 p.m. I could be home at a certain time. Now that I'm opening this, this second gym, it's going to require this much level of attention for me for the next six months. So they're not going to see daddy as much. Yeah. So, but he said, come May of next year, they're going to see me again. So it's like there's like this pendulum where I'll have lots of time with them and then I'll have not so much time with them. But the time that I have, I try to maximize that and make it count to the best of my ability. So in his mind, you kind of operate in extremes depending on where you are and what season you're in in your particular life or career. Yeah. I love that. I think. I think that's an interesting perspective to take as well, because I presume that your friend works for himself, mm-hmm. yeah, right? He's so a it's, owner. he's yeah, part, part owner of the gym or now two gyms. So there's a little bit more of like a flexibility around that. And I, I personally struggle with work-life balance and I think I can't, I don't know. I don't, I don't I used to be like my generation, the younger generation, but I don't think, <laughs> I, can, I don't think that counts no. anymore. <laughs> no, you Tell me about it. I was like, oh, okay. Um, but I, I think that there is, it's, it's when you're a high performer, I think there's a, there's, there's, um, it's tough to turn off and set those boundaries. Absolutely. I just, I just think that's true. And I, I will never forget, I had one manager who was so good at this. I admired her so much for this. She'd be on at eight and she'd be done at five. And Mm -hmm. she was a client client management. She did all of that. And she was like, I know when it's escalated and it's urgent, I need to jump back on. And I know that it's okay to wait till till tomorrow as well. Mm -hmm. And that is something I have admired and aspired (laughs) to be like um, every day. I don't know if I've mastered it, to be completely honest. And I think it's especially tough in new business because everything's on a heightened timeline and it's mm-hmm. for the bloodline of the agency. Like I just, I think it's tough, but I also kind of think like, I don't, I, it's shocking to me that we even talk about work-life balance because in some other cultures, it's just like, what is this notion? Because you work to live, not live to right. work. Um, so I do think it's actually possible 
what do I try to do? I try, I don't know. Do you have any tips? <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm in the same boat as you. I, you, you took the words right out of my mouth. Like I struggle with the off switch just yeah. because there's two things for me. One, I am competitive, but not in a, I want to be the best and only be the best and only one. not in that sense. It's just that I get inspired a lot by what my other folks do, what my mm -hmm. other colleagues do. And so I always want to, um, I always want to service my clients at a high level. It's just a part of my DNA. And for me, I love what I do too. So sometimes it doesn't feel like work to me because mm. I, I enjoy uh, a lot of the aspects of the job that I do. And then there's a part of me also, cause I dealt with uh, an issue a few years ago where I was let go with a company. I was hitting all my numbers and I just didn't understand why. And to be honest with you, mm. that feeling still lives yeah. with me. Yeah, right? sure. So, yep. so it's, it's, it's there, right? So I'm always going out of my way so that, you know, if a day should come, it will never be because of effort or performance. It'll be because of some other, you know, bigger reason beyond that. So I, I struggle with you. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm just learning to accept that, you know, at some point I do need to figure out what my hours of operation are. I heard one person say that like, Hey, like a business, you see somehow a business says open at nine, close at seven. What are your hours of operation? Mm -hmm. And kind when of stick do you function to the best? Yes. Yeah. And, and stick to that as much as possible. And also in my role, we have a little bit more flexibility around how we can control our day, so to speak. So for example, now that we're on this hybrid schedule for the last two, two and a half years, I could start my day at maybe, you know, at my computer, let's say around eight, work until about nine. And I'll actually go to the gym from mm. 9 a.m. to 10 a.m. if I don't have yeah. any meetings, because that's the downtime in the gym at LA Fitness. That's where I go. Because <laughs> everyone's, everyone's at work. Yeah. I'll go there and I'll come back, meetings, whatever, and, and continue to work. And I, I, I try to break up my day with certain activities and understanding that because I am working at, at home for the most part, three, yeah. four days a week, um, I'll be working till seven, but it's not like eight, nine hours straight. If, yeah, if that makes there's sense the breaks in between. Yeah. Yeah. I, I hear you. I also just, there's two things. I like the way that you said hours of operation and like, how do you work best? Mm -hmm. And then there's another thing. It sounds like you're high drive. I, I, I don't know if you... Have you mm -hmm. heard of Brene Brown? Yes, yes, of course. Uh, of course. I'm sure. I've listened to your podcast. I'm yeah. sure you have. Um, but she often says that your superpower can also be like your biggest weakness. And I think mm. that that's what – I don't. I'm just to take liberties here, but you feel free to disagree with me if I am speaking on your behalf. But I also sometimes feel that like people like us can suffer from, right, where we 100%. are very, very focused on, on output and all that kind of stuff and we will keep going. But at that same function – if we keep going at that same pace, like we're, yeah. it's going to be not provide, like we're going to be so burnt out and tired of what we can't provide any value anymore. So then to bring that back to hours of operations, it's almost like we need to find a way to know when we work best. So like, what are the things that we need to do as like almost maintenance 
to make sure that we're always going to be performing at our best. So whether that is for you, like going to the gym from eight to nine or, or excuse me, nine to 10, and then taking those breaks or what are those like things that you need to do? Cause it sounds like you, you but also myself, like my, I'm very, very fortunate to have a leadership team that also allows that, mm-hmm. um, that flexibility. So it's like, okay, how do we find that perfect perfect balance. And I think it's right. going to change regardless, like depending on where, where you are, like what season you're in, who you're working with on what project, because as client people or very people focused roles, like we'll have, you have to adapt to your team right. and what you're working on. Um, but what are those non-negotiables? I'm not entirely right. sure yet. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're, we're all figuring it out. And that's one of the things mm-hmm. I've come to learn is, you know, most people, if not all, don't have it figured out because we're all figuring it out because we're all evolving. Right. And mm-hmm. so I think it's a journey. I think you had mentioned that, that word uh, earlier on, it's a process. And and speaking of work-life balance, the agency life, notoriously yeah. known for burnouts. Uh, what's the phrase? Overworked, <laughs> underpaid. You, you hear yeah. all these statements. And so my question for you, Cindy, as a game changer, do you think, it is actually possible to change that kind of scenario in the agency world. Do you think that's actually feasible right now? Cause some people will say that the agency model is a bit antiquated. It's outdated, so on and so forth. Yeah. That's a good cue. I do think, I think it, the model is a bit outdated. Mm-hmm. But I think, I kind of think everything comes kind of full circle. Mm -hmm. I do believe that it's really, it's going to be really tough to break out of that because I do think like an like agency life, as you said, like has that reputation, right? It's like work hard, play hard. And that you have the kind of people who go into agency because they know that that's going to be the case. Um, I do think we're like the agency world is, is taking a lot of steps to try to break that. I think flexible, flexible and hybrid working is is starting to be come a thing. But I also think, to be completely to be completely honest, I think I I fundamentally believe that anything is kind of possible. If there's a will, there's a way. So mm-hmm. yes, I do think that we can change it. But I do think it starts with leadership, mm. and I and that. And you talked about it earlier, right? Like that North Star, is it in your values? Is it something that is not just spoken about, but is authentic? Um, is, you know, is EDI something that is actually throughout the entire agency? Is human first something mm-hmm. there too? Are you safe enough to fail? Like, I think all of those are leadership led. And I think it's not just upper leadership, but also middle management. Right, and I kind of think it, it's 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 almost like how are you ever going to change capitalism? It's like you have to do it from the inside out. Like I kind of right. feel like you have to change agencies from the inside out too. Right. Um, I always think about that one manager that I had who started at eight and ended at five, and it's like she is one of the smartest people I know, so she can do it. It's possible. I feel like it's possible. It must be possible. Right. Yeah, you know. No, you're. What do you're you right. think? They're, no, they're, 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 I think. I think it is possible. I actually had a conversation with one of my clients. Their their husband is the VP of some agency in Peru, interestingly mm. enough. And he actually knows a lot of 
top people in the industry, some folks at WPP and so on and so forth. And the way that I know it's possible based on the conversation, he was having a conversation with some other gentleman and he was all about the P&L sheet. Mm. He's like, listen, we can go this route, but your culture will suck if you're completely focused on P&L. Because at the end of the day, he's like, what is it, what's that saying? Culture eats uh, a strategy for breakfast or something like that. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so it's like um, if the, the, the challenge when you, you put a lot of emphasis on the culture, you might compromise growth in the beginning. But I think it's kind of like, I might be going way off on a tangent here, but it's kind of like the Chinese bamboo tree, if you know about how that grows, right? So for the first three, four, five years, externally, you don't see a lot of growth with the Chinese bamboo tree, but what you're not seeing is those roots that are, are forming. growing. Yeah, they're forming on the ground. And I think when you take that culture first perspective, that attitude, externally, they're like, oh, this company has slow growth because they're not seeing yeah. a lot, but they're building such a rich, strong culture that over time will be more sustainable, be more of a fun place to work. They may not be number one in a profit margin perspective, but mm -hmm. maybe they'll be in top five, but it'll be a really cool place to work and people will want to stay there for years and yeah. maybe end their careers there. They're playing the long game. The long game, 100%. Right. And I think that's like, I don't know, I, I, maybe this is like a tech thing, but I feel like a lot mm -hmm. of folks are trying to build something quickly, scale it, get out. Yeah. And I think there's, um, not to bring this back to sustainability, but there is like <laughs> constantly thinking about it, but there's, there is this, there's this uh, short term mentality that I think a lot of folks are focusing on as opposed to the, the longer term, right? Like what are this, uh, to exactly your point, it's like, what are the, the things that might not show the most return on investment at this moment, but are the things that are going to be building for the long term? Mm -hmm. And I think that's tough. And I think, and I also think that's why we don't see a lot of immediate action and change with ET&I, for example. I think that's right. why it's really tough because you can't see the return on investment instantly next quarter. Right. But it's, right. I don't know, I, I forget who told this to me. I think it's, I think it might be one of my, my, someone on my leadership team now, but it's like you can, the impact, it, 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 it like moving a small boat, changing that direction is so much quicker but the mm. impact and the ripple effects that it has is a lot less than like a massive ship that if you change it over time, mm. that will have lasting and resounding effect. So it's, right. it's what are you prioritizing? That's what's, what are your values? If you're prioritizing that short-term gain, then of course you choose the second option. But if you're, if you're in it for the long haul and right. it's just what, what are your, what are you valuing? Right. Right. No, I love it. So kind of my last question for mm -hmm. you here said, what do you, believe is the best lesson you've learned from either failing or overcoming those difficult, challenging moments in your life thus far? What do you believe the best lesson is that you've learned from those moments? Um, I think trust. Mm-hmm. I feel like that it's a weird answer, but um, trust in my abilities to figure it out. Trust in my community 
in my friends and my family. Cause it's really when you're in the, like the thick of it where it's like, okay, these are my people and these are my, this is my community. And it shows you the value of everyone you have around you. And I really like, I, I am the most believer of the phrase, like show me your friends and you show me you. Mm. And there's, there's a certain level of trust or, like about yourself and your abilities to get through kind of anything and to problem solve and to think about it and okay, okay, how can we solve for whatever issues in front of you at that moment? But it's also like trust in my incredible support group, my, my, my friends that I don't, wouldn't be anywhere without my, my family, my sister. Like, I think the biggest thing I've actually learned is, is trust. Which is is a is a weird one, I would say, <laughs> maybe not a traditional answer. No, I, I no, I I dig it. For me, when you say trust, what I was thinking about is learning how to trust your own intu- intuition. Mm-hmm. Your That's a big one as well. Because um, I think sometimes we ignore that, and I, I had this yeah. phrase, and I think this is weird. I think we live in this data drunk society. We're almost mm-hmm. too obsessed with stats and figures and i think that comes with a level of compromise where yes i'm not saying you shouldn't trust numbers but i think numbers are just a part of the equation yes you know if you especially if you think about it from our world where we're you know advertising we're talking to humans we're giving messaging to humans at the end of the day a majority of us will make our decisions based on emotions and then justify it on logic. With numbers, yeah. Right? Yeah. And so as much data as there is in this world today, and there's a lot, we're still very much so emotional creatures, emotional habits, right? And so mm-hmm. I think, you know, learning to understand, to trust your gut, even if you don't have the facts, all yeah. the numbers – I think that's what I'm trying to say is like, even if it completely doesn't make all this all sense to you to trust that. And that's hard to do. I'm not saying it's easy, but like when you said trust, that's where my mind was going. Yeah. I also think like you're completely right. I think we live also live in a world where our gut is often said, we often tell it to like be quiet. We don't listen Mm -hmm. to it a lot. We've Mm -hmm. not listened. We haven't trained that our muscle to, respond to it a lot and it's, it's very hard to hear mm-hmm. um also love what you were t- saying about what, about data because i it's like data everyone's like the data is telling me this although the data is not saying anything data is just numbers like you right. are inferring the story from it and right. i feel like we are you're right you're emotional creatures and we're looking for the validation in the numbers of like what do we what do we do and i think a lot of that is actually in our gut right. um but I also think failure is like a big part of how to learn to trust your gut. Absolutely. Like you can't, like it's so critical. Like failure is so critical. You learn so much. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so say I have three rapid fire questions before we go really quick. So this is where mm-hmm. I ask you a quick question. You give me the first thought answer that comes to you, your mind. Why am I so, more nervous for this than the other questions? <laughs> oh, they're good. They're good. They're good. Don't worry. I kept them friendly. Um <laughs> And fun. Are more bike lanes great for the city of Toronto? Yes. I figured you'd say that. Well, I also just like biking. And I'm fundamentally, I don't drive. 
<laughs> I just gotcha. I don't. So I actually don't know the experience of a driver with new bike lanes. Well, I'll tell you, it's 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 a, it's an experience. Is it okay? I trust you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is this so, is coming I'll, from a non-driver perspective. I think you guys should have your own path separate from cars because I think it's dangerous. Love. Yeah, I think it's dangerous because I'll tell you what's happened to me a few times. And you can tell me from a, a cyclist experience or a POV. I'm like halfway through a right-hand turn. Okay. <laughs> and you're coming and you're dinging. My car is 3,000 plus pounds. Yeah. You you might want to stop. I, I Listen, I hear you. I also think it's, it's interesting too because I think it just happened on Adelaide where – Yeah there was a bike lane on the right-hand side and now it's on the left-hand side and there are barriers and it's like confusing and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I think, yes, I'm a pro bike lanes person. I do think it's a bit odd sometimes how they just kind of pop up out of of nowhere. But I also think that there's a lot of precedent for cities that were designed to be driving cities to now turn into bike cities. I think Helsinki is one of them. Um, It's just so interesting because it can be done. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of examples of it. I also love city design. If I could have done anything else, it'd been city design or like architecture. Yeah, but it's I'm not math enough. At, I'm not. I'm not good enough at math. Same here. <laughs> Listen, I, I hear you. civil engineer was one, and aeronautical engineer. I was a average, low B average student in math, so it was it was out of the question for me. We can aspire. <laughs> <laughs> All right, number two. Um, if you could change one thing about the world. What would it be? I could change one thing about the world. I thought you said that you're going to keep this fun and easy. <laughs> one thing? One thing. Just one oh, thing. Oh, my Lord. I know you probably have several. Just pick one of them. Um, I would probably... <laughs> Oh shoot! I think I—I don't know. It seems like a silly answer. I feel like I'm like world peace, but it's—it's it's like not like I don't know compassion. Mm-hmm. I think that would probably be the biggest one. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's—I think it's everyone's getting like you said earlier. Everything is so political now, and yeah. I think it's because there's like a lack of compassion and empathy, and people are just not happy to sit in the gray or either this or that. There's such yeah. a divide. Um. Yeah. Oh my God. Oh, I love that. No, that's that's a, that's a big rapid fire question. That, no, but that's perfect, though. <laughs> okay, right? that is perfect. Um, and my last one is: What is a quote or a mantra that you that you currently live by? One percent better every day. One percent better every day. The incremental, the compound effect. Yes, I love it. I love yes. it. Yes, that that's that way. It's less daunting, and if it's just one thing. One thing that's better, 1% better. Awesome. Sydney, this has been a beautiful and wonderful conversation. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Hopefully you did as well. I had a great time. <laughs> um, if people want to connect with you on LinkedIn, since you're such a game changer, trailblazing, the oh, city of Toronto, the country, <laughs> across the globe, <laughs> if people want to connect with you, follow you, uh, what's the best way for them to do so? Probably LinkedIn, just Sydney Kirkland. The one and only. <laughs> the one and only. That's it. I could. Yo, can I be your hype person? I, I'd love I would person. love that. 
Absolutely. Yeah. I'll be your yeah. hype person too. I'll be your hype person. Next stage, you grace. <laughs> um, well, guys, uh, that concludes this episode of Three Questions uh, with Corey Kareem. Um, as many as you know, I, I typically like to end each conversation by saying this. If you want to just impress someone, talk about your accolades, the the shiny objects you have in your household, your accomplishments, accomplishments, excuse me, all that sort of stuff. But if you really want to have an impact on someone else's life, talk about your failures, those down periods, those, those trying moments in your life, and more importantly, uh, the lessons that you learn uh, from those experiences. That's how you really move the needle in someone else's life. So with that being said, Sydney and I are out. Peace and love. Until the next time. Clockwise. 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 Clockwise.